This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is December 19th, 2019, and this is episode 169. Do I say giggity giggity? I think nice is the uh, standard reply to any time that number comes up. Right, Family Guy is really dated now. <laughs> I'm Scott Delenebaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we're going to do a look back, a look ahead, a look abroad, and some other looking around as we record our last episode of 2019. The last episode of the decade. Yeah. I don't want to do a decade look back, though. That's too much effort. We've only been doing the show for three years. But we have to thank those who helped make this show possible. We're up to 77 people now on Patreon. That's a few more new ones since last week. I would love to see that number get to 100 by the end of the year. I think that's overly ambitious. But I know we have more than 23 more listeners. Well, I think we end of this year, yeah. End of next year, that's definitely doable. Oh, let's get it by January. January 30th. It's ambitious. Let's keep being ambitious. Keep us going through 2020, patreon.com slash politicoast. If you can't donate, do shout out the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Even if you do donate, also shout out the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Tell others that you give us money. We have a lot of goals for 2020. We are in the process of incorporating an organization to oversee the two podcasts, This and Can Be Report. Uh, The biggest hang up on there has been the registrar who is out to get us and hates every name I have suggested. So that will eventually happen, hopefully by the end of the year. And then hopefully a lot of growth and more changes. I think Politicoast is in a good spot. We'll keep going at this pace we've been going, but maybe some tweaks to make it a bit better. Always welcome your feedback podcast at politicos.ca and want to do a lot more with Canby Report because we have not had enough people on mics just because we don't have enough time to talk about how crazy Vancouver Council is, let alone Surrey Council that like exploded this week. Oh, yeah. Also, who has the mayor wants to put in a canal just because? We haven't talked about the fucking canal on Canby Report. Oh, it's crazy. Look this up. Thanks, though, to Cortado Productions for editing the shows. Your Patreon support helps us pay them and that helps us get the content out when we don't have the time to do hours and hours of editing, and they keep us sounding good. Also thanks to BC Today for the continued partnership. Their last edition of 2019 has been published, but Shannon will be back in the new year with daily content in the lead-up to the legislature and then through the legislature, an invaluable resource. Sign up for a free trial at britishcolumbiatoday.ca. Use the offer code CITIZEN to let them know we sent you. Let's jump into 2020 vision a look back at our predictions, a look ahead at future predictions. Long-time listeners will remember that we've made year-end predictions the last couple years now, and then we kind of like to evaluate them to see how we do and hold ourselves to account. Yeah, so I pulled them up from our show notes from a year ago this morning, and turns out we actually did not too badly on it. Uh, you accurately called minority government and sheer resigning. Yeah. Although we're uh, more, I think, op- I don't want to say optimistic, you thought Bernier would do better than he did. Yeah, I really didn't think the People's Party would make a splash, but I thought maybe on name recognition alone he could hold his riding, and he didn't, so I'm glad to see that. You were more accurate there, saying they would elect no one. I don't know if you would have said that they did would do as badly as they did, but we don't have that on the tape. You did think Jugmeet Singh would leave federal politics, though. 
Yeah, he hasn't. Sheer did, but uh, yeah, no, J Jade Meat has the party behind him, even if he posted a not particularly great result. So he's going to be around for the long term. And we both thought the Greens would elect a second MP, which happened in March that we'll talk about a little bit later. And then they elected a third, so we did not call that. But I also mentioned that May would announce her plans to resign as leader, and I nailed that one. Good oh, call. pretty good. Yeah. Was there a cabinet shuffle, as you predicted? Yeah, actually, very early on in the year. I checked that one off basically our first week back, I think. Maybe our second. Because that was the uh, cabinet shuffle where Jody Wilson-Raybould got demoted. And we will talk about that. So federal politics was fairly predictable this year. Provincial politics... I, th How I think it was do? a low, it was a high probability guess that Kenny would win election in Alberta. So I mean, no I real was surprise hopeful. there. You, you thought uh, Notley would squeak out a minority, but. I was hopeful. I think that might have just been wishes. Yeah. There was no real strong third party in Alberta. The Alberta party, I think, pulled 10%, but it was so diffuse across the province that it didn't really make a difference. Yeah, it's effectively a two party state there. Hey, that's one more party than it used to be. <laughs> you didn't think Plekis would resign? He's not officially resigned. He's talked about not running again but, well, in the he, future. Well, he talked about not running again. Then he talked about wanting to run again a few weeks ago. So in typical Pletus fashion, he's all over the place. We were both pretty confident the government wouldn't fall and there'd be no election in the province. That was a fairly reasonable, easy prediction that came true. The recall campaigns. You wanted them to fail. They, they, I had yeah. forgotten there even were attempts to recall it, it, that's they, another high probability guess because recall campaigns always fail. But like they disappeared from the media before I think they even started collecting signatures. Like there was a bunch of talk of them. There was, who was planned? David Eby, Daryl Plakis. Okay. And those didn't go anywhere. Nope. On electoral form, I don't think I had a prediction, but you thought that uh, BC would go for a member proportional and that there'd be a bunch of legal battles following that. I mean, there undoubtedly would have been... Again, I think I was just hopeful, <laughs> optimistic. I think we found out right before the year end, the results of last election, of the referendum. I think yes. it came out like right after we recorded our predictions. Well, it came out, I believe, yeah, very late in the year, almost into the new year. Mentioning Plekis once again, I talked about the RCMP filing charges. It says in here, Speaker and Sergeant-at-Arms. I think it's supposed to read Clerk. Uh, I literally copied and pasted these notes in, so sometimes it's probably write, a typo. Sometimes I write show notes really fast and don't pay enough attention. <laughs> anyway, the RCMP have not filed charges, but we did get a leak about the... Well, not so much a leak, as in court documents showed what they were poking pursuing around yeah. as a charge. So we're still waiting on that. That'll probably be a next year one, so I was just too ambitious about them mm -hmm. moving forward on that. But speaking of charges and goings on in legislatures moving on to the international stuff i thought there was going to be no impeachment in the u.s well you uh accurately called that it would start you're pretty close it took until december because the nancy pelosi and mainstream democrats really didn't want to do it and then oh uh, we'll talk about we'll, we'll talk about later. it but their hand was basically forced on that but you do figured a member of trump's family would be indicted not yet not yet It'll come. I'm that'll be my first 2020 prediction. Looking Maybe 2021. Looking across to the UK, I think we both got some things right and some things wrong. We both figured Theresa May would go down as PM. I was thinking she'd lose a confidence vote after 
the deal was rejected, but I forgot how difficult it was for the UK to go to an election. And that's what they spent all year doing. Again, we'll talk about this more later. You were thinking that Brexit might probably go through this year, and then there would be a Scottish referendum on independence going through? Yeah, well, I I still think that's likely, but... uh... Brexit has taken longer and be more of a shit show than expected, so I, I think I was just off on the timing on that one. I was right that the Brexit deals were rejected multiple times, didn't realize you could reject the same deal like three times, but that's the fun of the UK Parliament, where you're not actually supposed to be able to do that. I thought Labour would win a minority government or a hung parliament in there well off on that one. Again, stay tuned. And if they'd won, Article 50 would be revoked and there'd be a subsequent referendum. That would have happened, but yeah. I had a prediction that uh, in France, Macron would improve in popularity. Have either of us... I have not checked what uh, is happening with Macron's uh, approval rating. I mean, there isn't riots happening at the moment, which I think were around the time we put that on, so it's probably a hit. Yeah, he's stayed out of the news a lot this year. I don't feel like checking, but I also did say more, in a depressing way, more fascist governments would be elected, with air quotes around there. I know India's still got Modi and he's going worse with his citizenship bill where he wants to give special privileges to foreign Hindus to come to India and not Muslims. It's it's more just not Muslim. He has a bunch of other religions. But yeah, it's mostly the not Muslim part that uh, has been the problem with that. Yeah. And then in... Britain, I don't think the authoritarian populist who got elected was a very optimistic sign. Is that so what's happening in Kashmir on India? Kashmir. There's Bolivia was a dark churn in terms of... I don't think you'd call that an election because that's 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 still developing. but... But on the other hand, I think there were some other optimistic signs. I mean, Israel, I think, had three elections this year and they all resulted in ties, which let's set that aside. It's its own mess of politics. I believe it's Finland has a new... Yeah, Finland. That that was really expected as there's one a number of the problem of, spots. Yeah, there's a number of Nordic countries that have resurgent center-left coalitions going forward and some things that are a little more promising for progressives out there. It's really easy to get hung up on the US and UK, but around the world, it's kind of a mixed bag. There are some signs that, you know, not every country is going down a dark authoritarian path, so... Yay. But how did the Falkland Island electoral referendum do? Turns out they extended the date into uh, 2020. So we'll find out in March. You didn't predict that. (laughs) No, I did not predict that. This was something I stumbled across, I think, literally minutes before we started recording. I threw down a prediction. But yeah, has not happened yet. It's the short version. All right. So not too bad. There were some big misses and some places I was just wildly optimistic Shall we turn our attention to the year that was? Sure. So kind of right off the bat was the cabinet shuffle mentioned previously that resulted in Jody Wilson-Raybould getting demoted. I think we might not have even done a full segment on it. It was so short. It kind of passed by in a blip and then suddenly became very significant in hindsight. Also in January, the wood chipper became a thing with the... uh, First report from Plekis where he al- talked about the wood chipper and the alleged truckload of alcohol. I think this was the report that was supposed to make us all throw up. It's never entirely clear which report it was going to be. It's just the allegations were. It was good. It was definitely a very good report. 
It was a ton of fun. Yeah, I think people got more humor than nausea out of it. The other thing happening provincially was the Nanaimo by-election. The, the only thing really notable about that is what it set up in the ensuing federal election as the MP became the MLA. Yeah, Sheila Malcolmson cruised to an easy victory and joined the BCNDP's government caucus. And there wasn't really any surprise. I know the Liberals had talked a big game. The Greens had tried to talk a big game. But in reality, the Nanaimo just went, now we're fine, provincially. But we'll come back to that. Moving into February, Jody Wilson-Raybould really dominates the news cycle SNC for the entire... SNC-Lavalin, the whole thing, really. That was basically all we talked about for February. And there's a few other things. Uh, another report from Plekis, kind of in the ensuing back and forth from two was... people's responses. Burnaby's by-election finally happened, leading to Singh finally getting a seat after 500-plus days. Half of that was Trudeau's fault. Or a chunk, a big chunk. Like, he delayed that by-election. Like, six months. Like, at most six months. But yeah, Singh could have sought a seat earlier. A lot earlier. But he did get in. And in sort of weird circumstances, or not weird circumstances, but there was an initial federal liberal candidate who flamed out really fast on some, like, bad comments on Chinese social media, who was then replaced. And then I think she was replaced by Richard Lee, who then wasn't up to running in the federal election. So liberals kind of made a mess of that. The People's Party posted a big They got 10% share. in Burnaby South, which was, Unexpected, I think, their best but, result. Uh, no, I guess Bernier in his own writing got better than that. But yeah, it was a moment where people started raising an eyebrow about whether or not the People's Party would amount to anything, which it ultimately didn't. Yeah, and the United <clears throat> Reroll convoy dominated way too much media press time as like 10 truckers ended up driving to Ottawa? Yeah, well, I, I mostly threw it in there, not because it was a particularly impactful story, but kind of how it laid a lot of the groundwork for what would eventually be the problem Sheer would face on the campaign. Fair. Going back to the SNC, because that leads us into March, still in February, Gerald Butts resigns from his position as advisor to Justin Trudeau. He'll come back to, into our story later. And we kind of just start to see the what is what would come out would be major ethics violations by the prime minister's office and others in pressuring Jody Wilson-Raybould to try to cut this deal with SNC. And that brings us into March, where Jane Philpott was like, you know what, I'm with her. Yeah, so she left cabinet. There's a bunch of justice committee hearings that we talked a lot about during that uh, month. Ultimately, it made for interesting viewing and discussion, but wasn't as impactful as I thought it would be. Well, the Liberals dominated the committee at the time, so they were able to shut things down when they felt like they'd talked about it enough. Mm -hmm. Here in BC, though, the women of the press gallery and support staff workers and just women who work at the legislature raised the right to bear arms controversy and protest, pointing out that the legislature's dress code was horribly outdated. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that was actually ticked off when someone tried to enforce the horribly outdated dress code. Yeah. Leading to a bunch of protests. Like when you go from, all right, our dress code's a little bit sexist because it's outdated, to, all right, we're going to kick you out of the legislature because your arms are showing. People react appropriately, which is protesting. And it worked. It actually didn't just work, but it worked fast. Like the legislature changed its policy within like a, two, two weeks. Two weeks with a formal port 
uh, recommendations coming out a couple months later. But Which, yeah, the interim steps were taken fairly quickly. As someone who's helped change legislature policies this year, I have to say I've been impressed by how fast they've been willing to update some of the more outdated traditions. So credit to everyone working behind the scenes at the legislature right now on being open-minded and willing to look forward. Because I don't think we ever talked about it on the show, but MLA Rashna Singh from the NDP did bring forward a motion that was unanimously endorsed to also allow another dress code change to allow people to wear religious, cultural, indigenous headwear that might otherwise violate the dress code. And cool, that seems reasonable. So baby steps forward. Moving on to April, after two months of SNC continuing in, it suddenly got a lot more interesting as it gets into high gear again when Jody Wilson-Raybould released the now infamous tape of the conversation and phone call between her and clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Warnick. That she's so surreptitiously and illegally recorded, depending on whose opinion you're listening to. Yes. And that was the final straw leading to Trudeau taking uh, her and Jane Philpott out of the Liberal Party. And remember, Jane Philpott's only, like, transgression here was saying, I'm leaving cabinet to support Jody Wilson-Raybould. She didn't do anything else. But there she was got... like two more interviews where she was like, you know, I think she has some interesting things to say. That, that was about the extent of it. <laughs> and she was out of caucus. So, yeah, pour one out for Jane Philpott because her independent run was not that successful relative to Jody Wilson-Raybould's. But uh, speed of elections, uh, two, two elections happened that month as Kenny cruised to victory in Alberta and PEI had an election where the Green Party became official opposition. Yeah, that was a real big breakthrough on the East Coast and I think signaled the federal win of uh, It was Jenica the first sign of the uh, green wave that never really materialized, but it was the start of the talk of it. It was more like planting the saw or you know, the green grass starting to poke through the red PEI the, the, soil. That metaphor's a bit stretched there. Back here in BC, Peter German released the first of his money laundering reports. German's report included a number of recommendations that were all very technical and bureaucratic and that are being slowly worked through that everyone kind of agreed. But he did point out there is a number of issues and it led to a later report and now there's a full public inquiry. But let's jump into May when we come back to Nanaimo for the the federal by-election there where Paul Manley of the Greens has a breakthrough and defeats the NDP's Bob Chamberlain. Yeah, which was unexpected and he became the second ever elected green mp yeah it's a very huge win paul manley also notably was a past ndp member and wanted to run yeah for them change of party wasn't without controversy so that helped cement the greens for the federal election and led to a whole summer of talking about how the greens were going to break through and then they didn't i mean they got three seats which is a solid for a startup party although they've been around a while mm-hmm the charges against Admiral Mark Norman were finally dropped in May. So that was the other big potential scandal hanging over the Liberals about interference in prosecutions uh, regarding whether or not it was, in fact, proper to charge Mark Norman with a bunch of charges related to breaching cabinet confidence that, to a lot of people, seemed kind of drummed up because he made the uh, Liberals look bad. I was always curious about how much traction that story and that scandal would get. There were serious issues there, but it was like... So in the weeds about defense procurement? Exactly. And it was complicated enough that... It, if it 
if it and SNC Lavalin had been going concurrently throughout the summer, I, I think it had the potential to be much more impactful than it ultimately did. But where that scandal fizzled out, uh, Senator Lynn Bayek boiled over and was suspended from the Senate for continuing to post racist letters and anti-Indigenous letters to her Senate website. That suspension was lifted back in September when the session, or the House, finally rose. And now the Ethics Committee is considering what to do with her. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, the second phase of the money laundering report would come out, and that was in May, along with the public inquiry being called. That's still ongoing. I think it's still in a very preliminary phase. I think they've started... Uh, a couple of months ago, they started hearing uh, from people yeah, and, and did a starting. bunch of public events. Yeah, I think the real meat of that's going to be next year when they start getting submissions and start working with like intervener groups. Beverly McLaughlin, former Supreme Court Chief Justice, released her report in May into the legislature spending scandal. She did a sort of workplace policy. It was an administrative audit. law review kind of on it. So, and she basically said Gary Lenz, the former sergeant at arms, did everything by the books. Uh, There's a lot of problems with what was in the books in terms of rules, but she didn't find any times where those were the poorly written rules as they were were broken. She did find a couple dodgy things for Craig James, and she had some choice words for Daryl Plekis and Alan Mullen's unorthodox <laughs> methods. That's one polite way to put it. A lot of people pointed back to this report repeatedly saying, oh, this exonerated Lens, and technically in a way, but it's kind of like, well, he didn't commit a crime. But well, he, well, to be fair, or, nothing she was looking at was regarding criminal right. misconduct. So, it was administrative misconduct. It was more, he followed the rules and the rules are bad. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, May was also when we were all paying too much for gasoline, too. I think it hit $1.75 or something absurd. Think so? Yeah, it, it got high. And so John Horgan launched an inquiry into it, and then immediately prices dropped by like 30 cents. It was glorious. Apparently, all you have to do is say, We're going to look at you, and people get, and the gas companies got afraid. And May was the month when Jody Wilson Raybould and Jane Philpott announced their candidacy as independents. Uh, June started off with the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women report being released, and the country spent a week debating the definition of genocide before promptly forgetting about the whole thing and moving on. It was a the, weird, it was yeah, a really weird thing that the happened. The country being it. like, you know, the national press discussion and the political discussion. But I do know there are a lot of people who paid very close attention to that report, are proud of the work that was done there, even under all the challenges they faced. I think I said at the time, it was one of those situations where the number of recommendations and the size of the report probably would have been like more focused and tighter had they had more time and resources but you can't have inquiries go on forever still an important piece of work and i you know it's one of those ones that comes up during the election and the ndp is like yes we'll do it all and the liberals are like we'll do most of it probably eventually and then we don't hear about it again so the report is out there it's still worth referring back to and looking at so much work went into that but we started talking a lot about the election in June because it was the month when the NDP and Conservatives started to release policy platforms. The NDP released to... most of theirs, and the Conservatives put out what could only in the most generous sense be called a climate plan. I mean, it, it said that on the cover. <laughs> and then there were a lot of big pictures of wildlife on there, and it talked about how 
they would repeal the carbon tax, and that was their plan. Oh, and also they would replace it with a mandate that companies would have to fund R&D. If they didn't cut their emissions enough, which was this really weird, like, backdoor and very ineffective carbon tax that was earmarked for R&D. It was a mess. And economists pointed out right away that, oh, even if this worked, it wouldn't bring our emissions down to where we need them to be. So that was optimistic. And the Trans Mountain Pipeline received the formal approval from Trudeau again that we all expected it to, which leads us into a very quiet July, which is all you have written here. Yeah, I I was going through the last year of show notes prepping for this, and pretty much all we talked about in July was, you know, small stories that didn't really have much of a larger impact on things and, you know, aren't kind of a noteworthy, you know, this is what happened this year. I mean, that's kind of typical for a summer. And that's also the thing that was quite noticeable going through a year's worth of show notes was that, you know, we we highlighted quite a few here, but there's also just a lot of stuff that slowly chipped away in the background that doesn't necessarily make the top, you know, stories of the year. And whether individually might be a little impactful, it's a lot of 2019 just seemed to be just going through the motions of governing. Yeah. Well, August kind of broke that trend when the ethics commissioner dropped his report that, and this was the report that the liberals basically said, oh, we'll kick this SNC question to the ethics commissioner, who will probably clear us because no one thought he had the power to actually say, you did anything wrong. And he found a way to do it. And then nothing happened from that. We had this report drop right before the election in the middle of August that was very clearly like the prime minister illegally pressured Jody Wilson-Raybould to cut a deal with SNC, and then no one cared. And I think the reason is because by that point, you'd either made up your mind, you'd either already written off the liberals as corrupt for this, or you were like, well, they had to. Yeah, there's a a lot of that. It's a common feature in sheer stump speeches, but yeah, other than that, it didn't really seem to have a lot of legs. Yeah, considering the report that actually I think made a little more impact in that month was the BC government's, BC Utility Commission's gas price inquiry, which said, hey, here's 13 cents we can't explain in the difference in price between BC's gas and, you know, the comparable market just south of the border. And we're still looking for that missing, and it's now 10 cents, they explained a little bit more. Now, they didn't take into account taxes in there, but I don't, I think those are fairly fixed costs. Well, I think those are explained differences. Yeah. So that came out. Following that report, the government also announced this fall some efforts to force companies to disclose some of their pricing models and mechanisms to the government to hopefully find ways to pressure them to make our gas more reasonable. Mm -hmm. September was when the election writs dropped, and the election kind of took over as the main story. It's also the month where we found out there were going to be two Maxime Berniers running in the same riding when the rhinoceros party made their brilliant move of finding another person with the same name and getting him to run. They've apparently done this quite frequently. I'm glad they do. This is why they should exist. Thank you very much. It was definitely a rare moment of levity in an otherwise pretty terrible campaign, which brings us into the photos. I mean, I got to skip most of these stories because my baby was born on September 8th, so I was just hiding in a hospital and then at home dealing with all that. But yeah, Trudeau did blackface, and then it turned out he did it another time, 
And then someone I think said there's a third time they there's there's images of a third time, and he never really did get a definitive answer on how many times. I think he just acknowledges it was probably more than that. He just doesn't remember or want to say. So, three or more times, our prime minister did black or brown or somehow dressed up as another ethnicity and in some cases performed caricatures. And then he won, but that was the next month. Mm-hmm. But someone else who won that an election was Brian Pallister, who had an easy victory in Manitoba. Oh, yeah. Kind of the election everyone forgot was happening. And uh, the other big news from that month was Cameron Ortis, a senior civilian in the RCMP, was arrested on espionage charges. I think I fully missed this story. I'd actually forgotten about it until I was going through this stuff, and that's why I wanted to bring it up, because we still really don't have a conclusion on that. Cool. Cop spies. Civilian cop spies. October is when we saw Gary Lenz, the former sergeant at arms, finally resign. I think he was just tired. Uh, There's also a uh, police board, police commission. Whoever's the provincial level police overseers had a report that came out a week after that. So the, the thinking was he got an advanced copy of it and decided it was time to go. He wasn't the only one leaving provincial politics, as Andrew Weaver announced his intention to step down as leader of the Green Party and not seek re-election. He's been a big proponent of term limits, and so he set one on himself. The Liberals won the election, as expected. Conservatives did get more votes by running up the score in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Which led to weeks of talk about Western alienation. The whole Wexit thing that was really stupid and actually not a thing, but people just like saying Wexit, I guess. Do they, though? It it, it sounds silly. Like, si- the concept's silly, and then the label applied to it is an additional level of silliness. Not wrong. It was also the month that the B.C. government rolled out the UNDRIP bill in the legislature, which would go on to pass the following month. Big signature piece of the government's fall legislation, one that when we had our chance to look at it went, Oh, where's the rest of it? Because it was a short bill. That said, the ability of that it gives cabinet members and ministries to negotiate on a nation-to-nation basis is frankly radical and good. So that'll be interesting to see where that goes, particularly as it requires the harmonization of other laws in BC, all other laws in BC with UNDRIP. And so that'll be something I imagine the government's working on next year. Uh, throughout November, pressure mounted on Andrew Shear to resign. In the wake of it, uh, additionally, the new cabinet was announced. No big surprises there. Not really. Christian Freeland took on a really prominent role as the new deputy prime minister, a role we haven't had for a while, and moved from dealing with the U.S. to dealing with the premiers, but also dealing with NAFTA and also dealing with everything else. Yeah, although NAFTA passed the House today, so she, she may have one fewer thing to worry about shortly. She's still got, like... I think within her mandate letter is, like, deal with anything else that needs dealt with. Mm-hmm. She's, be, she's lining up as the, like, successor, fixer Yeah, talent. the way the mandate letter was written is basically almost co-prime ministers. And then finally this month, the throne speech happened. Not a lot. That was a surprise there. And the thing that was a bit of a surprise, mostly just because it happened quicker than expected, was Andrew Shear resigned. Amid his whole my party is paying for my kids' private school revelations, and then some other scandals that we'll get to in the next segment. 
so here in BC, things were fairly steady. There was a lot of drama in the legislature spending scandal. That was kind of the highlight. Yeah, of that's BC. the, the through story for BC this year. And federally, probably the three story line was SNC Lavaling and the Liberals' troubles. But like provincially, John Horgan didn't really feature in our year in review, mainly because he's just had like a steady, consistent rule <laughs> over the last year. Andrew Wilkinson also didn't get featured at all because they've been, I think, struggling to get traction. And so the next year will be interesting to watch this province to see if anything more interesting happens, but it may actually be... Yeah, it's a fairly quiet year in BC politics, which there aren't always many of. But let's uh, look forward to 2020, and what do you think is going to happen? As much as I love elections, it seems like it might be our first year with no provincial, federal, or municipal election to focus on. And I say that even though two of the I guess technically all three of those levels of government are in minority situations, but Vancouver is you, on you a fixed have, election. Yeah. You, you can't have an early election in Vancouver. I mean, everyone could resign or the province could fire them, but that's crazy talk. Watch me regret those words. I mean, the, the, a by-election isn't out of the realm of possibility. It's almost assured that there will be by-elections, but... Well, I was thinking municipally oh. because we do have one very old councillor. It's still more likely than not that we'll go without an election by-election here, and yeah, there's probably... There will be other provincial elections in other provinces, likely, but here, yeah, we'll likely go a year without elections. Uh, in the U.S., though, they will be having an election, and I'm going to say Democratic victory for the presidency. Well, first got to say who's going to take it, the, the, the nomination. That's a really tough one. Like, there's just so many people, right? Like, realistically, it's probably going to come down to the top four, yeah. In the U.S., so that's... So we got Biden, War- Sanders, Warren, and Buttigieg at this yeah. point. Buttigieg is making some ground uh, gains in Iowa, so it's not out of the question, but it's Sanders has a high, has a lower ceiling than the others, I think. So, I mean, it's, safe money's on Biden, but... I think if Biden takes it, he is almost like the hardest to beat Trump because he's running... As far as I can, he's going to end up running the Clinton campaign again. And it's going to feel even more tired in 2020. So if Biden takes it, I say Trump wins. And that's sad. Warren would be more interesting. It's hard to see it. I could see Sanders beating Trump at this point because I don't understand anything anymore. And that's just what I want to happen at this point. Buttigieg, I don't think, takes the nominee. I really want the bread conspiracy to be true that he is the reason or at least involved in the price fixing scandal at Loblaws it all lines up this is a conspiracy I'm down for at the lower levels though of the US government how do you think the Senate House play out overall because that's where it ends up mattering I think think the Democrats retake the Senate but by one maybe two seats at most so very narrow win in the Senate. And then have to deal with those like borderline Republican Democrats that they have in their party. Obviously, I don't think either of us think the Senate is going to vote to impeach Trump. Oh, yeah. Out. That, that's uh, that's right, we'll, we'll talk about it in a, in a later segment. All right. I think that covers enough. Yeah. America. You, you, enough of America. The federal government stays in place. 
but Trudeau has a rather rocky first year as a minority government. I mean, that's a vague claim. I think it's actually going to be a relatively, I mean, I say relatively, but quieter federal government in this next year. I think Trudeau has the incentive to make things go as smoothly as possible. I don't disagree with that. I just don't know they're going to be good at pulling that off. (laughs) Trudeau stays out of the limelight and things go better for them. It's simple as that. I think, I mean, we'll talk about the conservative leadership race. Like, I, my views on the conservative leadership race are kind of like the Hamid and Han I just did on the Democratic primary in that there's too many people and it's too early to really say. I think Peter McKay can take it. So I'll put him down as my likely to win. Or Ronna Ambrose, if she actually does jump in. I mean, pick either of them. And either of them will be a strong contender as Conservative Party leader. Not strong enough to bring the government down this year, because that would be a bold attempt. But we'll see where things go. Uh, I I mean, Brexit's going to happen, but I'm going to repeat my prediction that there will be another Scottish referendum. Sure. Just on federal politics one more time, do you think the tunnel to Labrador from Newfoundland is going to happen? No. It's in the mandate letter. I know. That's, that's such a weird little pet project. that like, that I want to know the story behind that because someone from Newfoundland really likes this project and also has the pull to get it not only in the platform but a mandate letter. FOI this. I don't know who you have to FOI, but FOI I'm it. not sure that the communications around platforms and mandate letters are FOIable. But someone in government's got to be talking about it. Yeah. Like, th- th- there's a story there on why this weird little project that doesn't actually make a lot of sense is apparently a major liberal priority. There's like one donor on the other side of it. Well, and should we close off with a couple predictions here in British Columbia, besides there not being an election and it being a kind of boring year? Yeah, I think it's going to be another fairly boring year. We have Green Party leaders to pick. Yes, but I have no... The, 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 <laughs> neither the MLAs are particularly interested in running. None of the sitting MPs want the federal party either. Yeah, so it's going to be an outsider, and I don't know the like people who are involved in the Green Party at the level that they would have a shot at running for a leader well enough to actually put a name out. I mentioned, I think, two names with Shannon last week for the federal Green Party, and I remember one of them is the current Quebec leader. I think the other was a former liberal who's like the former Esquimalt candidate for both the liberals and the Greens. I don't remember either of their names. So I think it's safe to say that the Green, both Green parties are going to be struggling by the end of the year with leaders who have no seat and not much name recognition. I kind of want to say when the local electeds will do it, but there's only one I could actually see even throwing his hat in the ring on it. Just because Pete Fry runs for everything. Yeah, it's Pete Fry, because Adrian Carr uh, is too comfortable in her council seat to ever rot the boat. And I don't see Michael Weeb or uh, Joe Keatley going for a uh, leadership of a provincial party. But yeah, Pete Fry does run for everything, so... You know, it's true. I'll say Pete Fry runs for uh, Green Leader. Go big or go home. Uh, I'm also going to predict that the high-speed rail to Portland uh, has a a major commitment made to it by the BC government. Okay. I'll go the other, the less optimistic way. And I will say that our 
daylight savings time will still be having to deal with that at the end of next year because they're going to delay it for an extra year while we try and like wait for the states to come in line. So it won't be, we'll still be changing our clocks through 2020, sadly. You're probably right on that one. I'm going to throw one final prediction that there's going to be an incident with China that will sour relations between it and the West in the next year. Tweet your predictions to us at Pod on Twitter or leave a comment on our Facebook page, which does exist. Yes, which you should all be liking. And our Instagram page, which also does exist and sometimes gets used. Well, let's move on to our next segment, Hats in the Ring, as we shift over to the Conservative leadership. We kind of touched on it briefly in the last section, but there have been developments in the past week. First off, the departure of Andrew Scheer has resulted in even more questions being asked about the fiscal management as it was revealed this week that in addition to the private school monies that were apparently flowing out of the Conservative Party, there was also an extra $700,000 in leadership office expenses. It was an election year, so one might expect there are some additional preparations, needs, stuff that the office the official opposition leader might need. It's commented in the coverage that this kind of funding, which has generally been about $200,000 a year for Shear's office, covers everything from PR professionals to hair and makeup people. That was famously a thing about Harper. Is for At one point, he had a psychic who was his uh, makeup artist. He apparently somehow did, missed that one. Yeah, I, I found this story by accident the other day. Uh, he didn't. He claims to have not actually gotten psychic advice from the person, just like she did the pre-TV stuff. But it was weird. So Shears, there's like reasonable office expenses, but it's unexplained why it jumped from two hundred thousand dollars to nine hundred thousand dollars this year. It does say he took additional media training, which didn't seem to stick. Well, either that or we would have been way worse without it. Like, we we might have seen the better and improved version of Andrew Shear. Definitely not the $700,000 better. They should be asking for their money back. What I think this also highlights, and a lot of commentators have talked about this, is that a lot of these leaks seem to be coming from people involved in what's called the Conservative Victory Fund. This is the nonprofit organization that manages the party's money. So you have the party apparatus with its staff, board and all the -the behind-the-scenes stuff, and then you have a separate board that just manages the fund. Now, Stephen Harper supposedly still sits on that fund's board, and a lot of his type of people are there, his team. And so it's it's still not pulling the strings in a, like, Stephen Harper is still lurking, be vigilant type situation, to quote Twitter. But, you know, he's not disconnected from the conservative movement. So the question is out there, like, is Stephen Harper trying to push Andrew Scheer out? that's the other conspiracy that I'm also really into because it's an interesting one. Someone definitely wants Shear out and they want him to look bad going out the door. And it's working. I mean, he made mistakes too, clearly. Bungling the election. The post-election was really the, where a lot of the mistakes really uh, took hold. He could have made the case much better than he did that, yeah, you know, we can go from where we are now and, and build on it and do better. And he wasn't really fed for making that case. And yeah, it's interesting with the Mulcair parallels that like both of them had not 
great election results compared to what they were hoping for, but they really sunk themselves in how they handled the post-election. What's more interesting, or the other element of that that's interesting, is just no one seemed to be good enough within the party apparatus to push Mulcair out the door when he needed to see it so that he could leave semi-gracefully. Sheer was starting to do that, and then all the leaks came out, and it <laughs> fucked him over too. So these are two ways you don't want your political career to end. But that void leaves open the opportunity for other people to step in. Who wants their pol- political career to be ruined next, or possibly to be prime minister, and then have it ruined? No one survives unscathed? Pretty much. So one of the first people to announced was Aaron O'Toole, conservative MP from Ontario, uh, ran in the last leadership race, came in third behind Andrew Scheer and Maxine Bernier. So, you know, respectable past leadership candidate, more on the moderate side, I think comes from kind of the PC wing of the party. Honestly, they could do a lot worse than uh, having Aaron O'Toole. I think he still struggles with national name recognition, but becoming leader for most Becoming leader of the official opposition will give you a boost. Someone who has no national name recognition, I think, is Brian Brulot, who's also put his name out. He is the CEO and chair of Maxis Staffing and Consulting, an employment firm. Okay. He's apparently been a longtime uh, conservative party operative helper, volunteer fundraiser, either kind of and rather worn than, a lot of the hats in the background. And rather than do the normal, like... First step is run as an MP. He wants to jump right to the top. And we saw a couple of those in the last federal election or federal leadership race. Kevin O'Leary, there was another business guy from West Van, I think. His name escapes me. Oh, um, not Andrew. There's Andrew Sasson, but he was a former MP. And then there was, it was Rick, Rick Peterson. So you get these people, guys usually, <laughs> jumping in and thinking they can take over. There is... One woman who's considering running, though, is Rana Ambrose, the former interim leader of the party who got a lot of high marks during her time keeping the ship afloat after Harper left. A lot of people would be very happy to see her. Yeah, in fact, a lot of people being very happy to see her is kind of why her name's been in the news so much, because right out of the gate at Brad Wall and Jason Kenney were coming out saying, you know who would make a great leader? Ron Ambrose. I mean, that's, that's kind of how Kennedy Stewart became mayor of Vancouver. His name was tested on a whim by a pollster. It did decent. And then people started going, Kennedy, are you going to run for mayor of Vancouver? And I guess he was not feeling great about the NDP caucus at the time. And so he ex- formed an exploratory committee and then the rest is history. So these things happen. You also have a few other people thinking about it. Yeah, so there's been a bunch of other names of people who are widely expected to run, are doing the, well, I'm not ruling it out, but are, you know, in serious consideration. Uh, Peter McKay, who's all but formally announced, I believe, that he'll be running, which is not a surprise after he um, made that empty net comment and was one of the first people to kind of uh, suggest that it might be time for Andrew Shear to leave an opening in the leadership for someone else to fill. So yeah, former leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, the one who... right up until its merger, former held a bunch of minister positions, Minister of Justice, Minister of Defense, a couple other ones. Another person who's been around the block politically for quite a while is Jean Charest, 
who announced this week he's thinking about it seriously. So he's a Mulroney-era cabinet minister, then went to the Quebec Liberal Party to run as premier, was premier of Quebec for a while, has a lot of baggage from that time. There were corruption scandals. I mean, it was Quebec politics and like a more corrupt version than modern Quebec politics was. So, you know, not without his past troubles that will no doubt make an appearance if he actually gets in. I do love the idea, though, that the Quebec Liberals can deliver us the leader of the NDP at one period and the leader of the Conservatives at another, realistically. I'm not sure how realistic uh, Jean Charest But he can be considered for it. It's not immediately laughed out of the room. Yeah, it's a weird party. Yeah, well, the the best provincial Liberal parties are the ones that are really big tents. And the Quebec one is just, let's stay in Canada. If you agree, vote for us. And that worked for a while. Michael Chong's also had his name float around quite a bit and stunned the, well, I'm not saying no. So we'll see on that. I mean, his challenge is he didn't do great. He came in fifth, right behind Brad Trost, which admittedly is not a great finish, but... Uh, sort of middle of the pack. Of middle of the pack, yeah. Upper large... middle of the pack. It's not he, a strong he, showing, and I wonder if... Like he, He's planted himself in the direction the party probably needs to go if it's to make a realistic shot at power. Whether or not the party's willing to go that way is the bigger question. and That's the thing. If conservative members look around the world, they could realistically and reasonably say we need our Boris Johnson Donald Trump like bombastic personality who doesn't give a fuck I'm almost replaying the last year and a half as though Maxime Bernier had won the leadership and I don't think he would have been laughed out of this election he would have been given a lot of airtime and been taken far more seriously than he was which he also wouldn't have moved as far to the alt-right as he would have Without that, it's a different. I mean, timeline. Paul, yeah, like the Maxime Bernier that would have run as conservative leader is a lot different than the Maxime Bernier that run as that ran as a People's Party leader. So, I mean, he's definitely done himself no favors with with how he uh, ran things after leaving the Conservative Party. But yeah, it's a complicated situation. One name that was floated as a possible Trump was John Baird, in a very weird National Post column. That I think that actually made the explicit we need our version of Donald Trump. Yeah, except the comparison was they're both patriotic or something like that. It's like they both care about their country. And I was like, I don't think you understand Donald Trump's politics at all or Canada's or it was weird. And then as that editorial comes out, there are reports on Twitter and allegations on Twitter that John Baird is has harassed people in the past sexually or like chased them down in a creepy way. So that's a ongoing story that I know media outlets are looking to confirm and will weigh heavily against him as, it, as such allegations should. And there's also Pierre Pralyevra who's had his name floated out there, has neither confirmed nor denied and got a quasi endorsement from former Harper strategist and campaign Manager uh, Jenny Bryan. And that's as many names as are roughly being floated for now. A few people have ruled it out. Jason Kenney, he's busy running a province, even though his popularity's starting to tank. Brad Wall just, I guess, likes being retired from politics. Fair. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, none, <clears throat> none of the premiers have made any indication they want the job. People keep asking Christy Clark, even though she's a federal liberal and it really doesn't make any sense. But I keep saying she could run the federal conservative leader or she could run in the federal conservative leadership race and then in the next liberal leadership race when Trudeau eventually retires. She's better keeping her powder dry and running to replace Trudeau. Also, Carolyn Mulroney's ruled it out, which is probably good. We don't need more dynastic politics in Canada. So we'll definitely be watching that in the new year. Like I said, expect some someone to try to be the heir to the Bojo type lie until you win approach. Yeah, so the like I think the conservative establishment party elite, whatever you want to call them, wants this to be a fairly quick, not particularly drawn out or nasty leadership race where a well-established, probably fairly moderate leader with good French and Eastern Canadian ties wins. So not Ronna Ambrose. She lost on the last point there. She doesn't have great French either. Although Ron Ambrose would be fine if she could improve her French, which is not necessarily an easy thing to do. But that's, I think, the type of profile that the the party establishment wants. But I am almost certain we will see a populist windbag type try and and probably make this a nastier leadership race than expected. It's worth remembering the conservative leadership race operates under a weighted vote system where each constituency has an equal vote in yeah, who so gets to be elected. Yeah, it's, and, yeah, 100 points per riding association. And so if your constituency has three conservatives, your vote weighs a lot more than those ridings in Alberta where there's like several thousand members. Yeah, so that was actually put in place during the merger negotiations by Peter McKay, who didn't want the party to be swamped by Alberta. Well, and it's a very smart system because when you have a federal election system that requires you to win in multiple provinces and build a national party, this makes sure that you don't just have a regional base, which Mm -hmm. is what the Conservatives got stuck with anyway. It'd be interesting if uh, Peter McKay wins because of the system he fought to put in place. But yeah, I'm I'm waiting for the person who wants to run the Trump playbook to emerge because I expect there will be one. Well, I think that's as good a point as any to move into a third and final, and let's make it a little quicker segment, impeachment and Bojo's big win. We don't have anything written. We just wanted to rant and review what's been happening. So break down as much as you can, because I think it's worth talking about why the Democrats actually launched an impeachment inquiry into Trump. Well, not just that. Voted to impeach yesterday, making Donald Trump the third president in American history to actually be impeached. After Richard Nixon. He was not impeached. He resigned before the articles of impeachment were voted on. So Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, and now Donald Trump. Which also statistically means a president's more likely to be shot in office than be impeached. So this is a a very rare event and is quite significant, even if the ultimate results are probably going to be that Donald Trump doesn't get removed from office. So Donald Trump gets in trouble for calling up his friend, Viktor Orban, president of Ukraine, and saying, can you dig up dirt on Joe Biden not, if not you even don't? Really dig up dirt, just have the appearance of trying to dig up dirt and launch an investigation. And if you don't do that, I won't give you the funds that my government has already approved for you for aid packages and things like that. That is illegal under the U.S. Constitution. 
yeah, it's pretty clearly a case of bribery. Also, it's, I mean, fundamentally attacks the, the fairness of American elections, which is why I think the Democrats who were reluctant to go for impeachment finally decided that, no, that their hand was really forced on this one. And this is such a breach of the democratic norms and you know it would basically undermine the rule of law if they didn't then exercise the only real option they have to hold a president accountable and i think it was also a simple enough scandal some of the other things that have come up around trump involve enough layers and enough obfuscation that it's not reasonable but you could see how it's hard to make as simple of a political case like when we were talking about Canadian scandals, SNC was fairly complicated, but it did start to break through. The Mark Norman one was a dense scandal that even people following it had to go, oh yeah, and then also this, and then like there's that other layer, and this is why that's wrong. And so once you have to start explaining that and you can't fit it in a tweet, it's not to say it doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter to a lot of people yeah. as much, unfortunately. The, yeah, something as simple as trying to rig the election in your favor is something that's really easy to communicate. And there was pretty strong evidence. Including Trump put out the transcript that was damning enough that, you know, they could have just impeached right then and there. But it all doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Like, it's good for the history books. I'm glad it happened. It needed to happen. But Mitch McConnell in the Senate, where the impeachment now moves, because when impeachment happens in the House of Representatives in the States, it's basically like charging someone with a crime. And then the Senate has the trial. And the person in charge of running that trial pretty much mitch mcconnell has already said we're gonna find him not guilty yeah so uh under the u.s system they require a two-thirds vote to remove a president or i think anyone else charged under impeachment you can impeach supreme court justices and whatnot which brings us to the supreme court because john roberts the chief justice presides over it and the only real modern example we have was Rehnquist in the clinton Impeachment, he basically just sat there and did nothing. So we'll see how much John Roberts actually takes part in this versus just kind of being there following the precedent that we have. And I mean, Republicans have a majority in the Senate. It's unlikely. Yeah. Best case scenario, you get Mitt Romney and maybe one or two others to vote for impeachment. I think even Mitt Romney is, you know, Mitt Romney might... lick the boots now. I don't know. Romney is like the one Republican so secure in his base be, because he's Mitt Romney, a, a Mormon from Utah, that like it, it, he doesn't have to appeal to Trump to not have a primary challenge. But And so the most frustrating thing about this is just like the hope here was that it could break through, that it could start to shake some Republican lawmakers and public opinion in a way that goes, this is bad. Instead, because the Republicans have like perfected their playbook of just like yelling everything they can to make, like lying, just straight up lying, obfuscating, denying, playing dirty, that it now has just become a partisan mud bath. You know, it's Democrats all vote to impeach, except one who's going to become a Republican, and the Republicans all vote against except one who then became an independent, and now it's just party lines. And the public opinion on it looks like it's divided fairly sharply along party lines as well. And so yeah, it's, it's depressing. Yeah. 
So I saw a lot of people on my Facebook going, yeah, he's impeached, or, you know, impeachment, impeachment, impeachment jokes, and really celebrating it. I just felt like a wet rag all yesterday watching it. I was like, oh. Well, it'll still be politically damaging either way. I think it might help the Democrats' chances in the Senate because they can now make the word, we need the Senate to actually be able to hold the government to account arguments. But yeah, at the end of the day, there's a a real question over what the role of the senators are in this one. And the U.S. system just wasn't really designed for this level of partisanship. Kind of reminds me of like early 2011 when here in Canada, the House of Commons found Harper in contempt of parliament. And that was over failing to disclose the costs of the fighter jet program that he was trying to purchase. Another procurement story. And they had obfuscated and misled parliament, according to the MPs. And so they vote, you know, we don't have, we find him in contempt of parliament, he's misled us. And the result of that is to go to an election. And then Harper wins a majority. And it's like, these things don't matter. (laughs) I mean, they do matter. But, like, in the terms of voters... Yeah, because that was definitely perceived more as a party-line vote thing rather than a... And it was, because of course it was going to be. Mm -hmm. So I'm a bit cynical. This is where I hope for politicians like Sanders or Warren who are talking about other things. So Warren's put out a lot of policies, and Sanders is just always policy and, you know, broader vision and whatnot. And they talk a bit less about what, I mean, you and I care a lot about norms and impeachment and stuff like that, but it's just like, it's not going to (laughs) win. I'm just afraid. So that's where I want to see things go. But I'm very cynical at this point. Maybe next year we'll be more optimistic. Shall we cross the pond? Sure, I have a bunch more I should say on the impeachment, but I think we've kind of hit the highlights. So uh, let's move over to the results of the UT election that were kind of just coming in when you recorded uh, last week's episode. Uh, we had them. We knew basically what had happened. We were just not wanting to delve in because there were domestic stories and I hadn't fully processed it. Basically, all the polls had shown the conservatives were pretty much guaranteed to walk away with that election from the start until the end. There was some movement as the Brexit party's support collapsed. This is a party that had popped up from Nigel Farage saying, we need to make sure Brexit gets done. And then Boris Johnson like came in and was, that's a good slogan. And that became his. And so he stole all those votes back. Labour was struggling because a bunch of Remainers had decided to park their votes with the Liberal Democrats and had briefly floated like a Change UK party that was going to be like ex-Labor, ex-Lib Dem and ex-Conservative members who only like cared about Remain or something and like doing politics differently, very centrist. No one cared about them. So they all disappeared. As the election went on, Liberal Democrats also bled support as Joe Swinson failed to inspire anyone. And people kept saying, hey, weren't you in the government that like went back on all its promises when the Lib Dems joined with the Conservatives? And she had to go, yes, I'm sorry about that. We'll be different this time. And people just didn't buy it. And so Labour picked up a lot of that support, I think, but it wasn't as fast as they picked up support in 2017 because I think people were tired of there's so there's basically two explanations why labor failed to break through that i buy there's several others out there one jeremy corbyn was unpopular that's indisputable every poll showed it he'd been well painted as an anti-semite whether 
that was justified or not. I don't think it's worth debating here. And the other is that Labour's Brexit position, well, I think was reasonable and I liked it. I thought it was the best, which was we will go back to the UK or back to the EU, get a different deal and then put that to a second referendum. No one cared or not enough people cared. There was enough people who were just like, we don't care. Just make it go away. We don't want to talk about Brexit anymore, especially in the north where Labour lost a lot of seats. Yeah, they lost some traditionally stronghold seats there. And it's interesting in that it's once again another rural-urban divide story. And in general, there's a realignment in Western politics, I think, overall, where a lot of, you know, blue-collar, more rural areas that traditionally had a strong labor component and went with more left-wing votes as a result have been moving into the conservative camp. Like, I don't even know if it was ideological in this election for a lot of those voters in Northern England. I think there they were just tired of, A, being taken taken for granted by Labour, who didn't campaign enough in the last 20 years in those constituencies, and B, just really did want Brexit done. Yeah, I mean, and there's a number probably of some of that, but like, if you see the same thing happening in country after country in the Western world, it's there's probably bigger structural things going on than just that. Yeah. I mean, the Lib Dems don't do well outside London because they are a very, you know, center-left, a center party that appeals to cosmopolitan, quote-unquote, elites, I guess. Me and you, to some extent, yeah. Versus, like, Labour did have a pretty good working class route, but, you know, has maybe focused too much on London and needs to refigure things out. The other stories are, you know, the SNP retook Scotland where they had slipped a bit in the previous election. That's not surprising given that Scotland wants to stay in the EU and that's the best vehicle for them to do it. And in Northern Ireland, there was also a strong stay in the EU trend and that I think knocked two DUP members out, which is very good. They're down from 10 to 8. And there's actually, I think for the first time, a majority unionist representation from Northern Ireland, as in there are more who want Northern Ireland to join Ireland than to stay in the UK. I think those are the loyalists. I always get confused. That probably doesn't mean much because there's not actually that many representatives from Northern Ireland, but that's the big question of Brexit yeah. is what happens there because... That still hasn't been resolved at no, all. There's no answer to that. Yeah, it's, a, it's an impossible thing to figure out without making some concession that nobody wants to. I mean, the big challenge for Labour, and there was no solution for this election, was how do they deal with a base in London that is very pro-Remain and a base in the North that was very pro-Leave. Mm-hmm. The Conservatives decided to just bank it all on the Leave votes. And if they could get all of those, they would have 52% of the country. Maybe 48 if the support had dropped. They got 40%. And when you look at how they voted in some of the major polls, you know, they asked people who were Leave voters, who did you vote? Oh, most of them voted Tory. Some voted Brexit Party because... Yeah, well, it, when, yeah. once it became came a fact that the Conservatives were banking so hard on it, Labour probably should have t- taken the opposite side and st- struck a harder position, e- even if it do- does make their internal coalition politics tough. There wasn't a solution, though. There's not enough Remain votes. 
the Remain votes are so concentrated in London that they could sweep London and then just like burn the rest of the North. So Labour was fucked (laughs) once the Conservatives went hard Brexit. Or they're going to do a deal now, but once the Conservatives bet it all on there, and if Labour went on a soft Brexit again, as they did in 2017, the Lib Dems might have eaten up some of the Remain supporters. So they were kind of screwed. What'll be interesting is in five years, when Labour doesn't have to deal with its two biggest weights, as Jeremy Corbyn has announced he's stepping down after two elections, and Brexit will be quote-unquote done. There'll still be negotiations and stuff, but the question is done. So then the question will be, will Labour try again on a socialist-like platform that they ran in 2017 and 2019 that polls really well, but maybe doesn't excite people or people are skeptical of Yeah, well, I think that's the other problem is that uh, generally you don't want to be too far off the median voter when you're a major party contesting power. And it definitely seemed they went quite a ways away from that. And and this also ties back to our earlier talk about... uh, the U- upcoming U.S. election and kind of what's the right theory of change there. And I'm generally of the opinion that you don't want to go too far off where the median voter is and that the just get the base really incited is not necessarily a viable election strategy. I mean, that also goes for the B.C. Liberals here and a bunch of other parties that like, like to do that sort of strategy, but it's generally not where I think good politics lies. I mean, it works for Trump and... Bojo just like ran lies I mean, and trucks. Trump ba- Trump barely squeaked the victory out and courts of the electoral college and first past the post. Anyway, there's my rants on England and America. Eventually, I'll give a rant about how Australia is also screwed up because they keep electing right wing. Their national party goes pretty right. Anyway, we're running long. Yeah, and I have not looked into Scott Morrison. I think just though. Trump PM? I believe so. New Zealand's doing good, though. <laughs> also the only, you know, English-speaking country with not first-past-the-post. Yeah, I guess that is right. Although, you know, gi- give it another year or two and Scotland will be added to that list. But let's move on to a final quick tape. We talked a lot about SNC Lavalin this week in our year in retrospective, uh, but it was also announced couple days ago that they finally reached a plea deal with the prosecutors. Uh, So they're pleading guilty to fraud, are going to pay $280 million over five years and be on probation for three years. But in return for that single guilty plea on fraud, the charges under the Corruption of Foreign Officials Act are going to be dropped. And those were the ones that would have made them ineligible to bid on federal projects. As I heard it described, this is pretty close to what they wanted on their deferred prosecution agreement anyway. So it seems like they're getting off with a not a little more than a slap on the wrist, but could have been a lot worse for them. Yeah, definitely could have been a lot worse. But I think the important thing here is that it wasn't the government of the day that decided this. It was the prosecution service. And it I mean, also, we hope. Like, let, yeah. Let's hope nothing comes out on this one. But by all appearances, this was done the right way as opposed to the corrupted runway that the liberals were going about it earlier and it puts that story to bed but for now i mean there's still the lingering ethics questions that there will no doubt be attempts to get to the bottom of in this upcoming minority parliament so we have so much fun to look forward to well and just one last little file follow-up relating to that is jody wilson raybould who was in news last week for 
quote-unquote refusing to leave her ministerial suite, has moved up three floors to an equivalently sized office, according to her words to CTV, where she is quite happy. So she did move. It seems a lot of it got a bit puffed up <laughs> by, C by CBC, by whoever was talking to CBC. But there we go. She did move. No big deal. I do still kind of wish she'd fought it till the end just to actually see how long it takes to break traditions in our parliament, because there isn't actually a policy as far as we can tell about who gets what office when. I, I think there is a way to they go about it. I think it's a sign on seniority and well, no, no, yeah, sentence, that, that's their tradition. It's yeah. not clear if that's written down though. Right. And so if well, she I, fought it, how long would it take? Anyway, I imagine one day the sergeant at arms would have come in and had all her stuff taken out. That was another story. Was that he was ready to evict her yeah. because they asked, "What would you do if she wouldn't leave?" He's like, "Well, I guess I'd have to evict her." And they're like, "Sergeant Arms promises to evict." They're like, "What the hell is happening?" It must have been a slow news week the last couple of weeks. And that has been Politos. Find lists to everything we talked about at politos.ca. Support the show and get access to our exclusive Slack channel at Patreon. .com/politos. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sergio Potnikov. Editing services are provided by Cortado Productions. Thanks for listening.